0: So the Nora, Noah story, the Noah story begins in Genesis chapter 5, and I'm going to um, read some snippets, three selections. If you don't have your notes, there's a, we have a notes sheet. If you need it, there, there are notes available in the back. Um, what we're going to do is go through selections of the, the Noah story. I'm not going to read two chapters. It's just too much, and I'm going to lose you in the process. Um, I'm not expecting you to read the story in advance, Rather, I'll consider it a success if after you hear what Noah is really about, you're driven back to the scriptures to look deeper. And if you find yourself saying, that's very interesting. I didn't know that's what this story is about. I want to go deeper. And you look and you read the story after the fact, that's good. I consider that a success. So Genesis chapter 5 and 6, the three selections that I'm going to focus on today The first selection is chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, and I'll call this the genealogy. So first, we're going to talk about the genealogy. Second is Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, and I'm going to talk about something called the will to power. And I want to focus a lot of my time and attention today to this idea of the will to power. Hopefully, by the end of today's talk, I will have convinced every single one of you that this is a real thing and it exists in all of us. In other words, it's original sin. And third and last, I'm going to finish with Genesis chapter 5, verse 28 and 29, and we'll finish with the meaning of Noah. So we'll talk about what Noah actually means in light of all of this, the will to power. So first is the genealogy, second is the will to power, third and last is the meaning of Noah. Let's begin with Genesis chapter 5, verse 1 to 6, in the genealogy with this first heading. I'm going to read the first six verses of Genesis 5. Listen to the word of the Lord. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them, and he named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Now, by the way, this kind of bypasses Cain and Abel, goes directly to the line of Seth, the third son, and it would be through the line of Seth that all of humanity would be born. So through the line of Seth. We continue with verse 4, then the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters and so all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and then he died. Seth lived 105 years and he in turn became the father of Enoch. This is the word of the Lord. A couple of things I want to point out uh, before I deep dive into the genealogy. Um, You see that he lived 930 years, Adam did. Um, I'm not going to explain, I'm not going to theorize. I don't know how human beings lived for 900 plus years back then. I don't know the answer. I can tell you the different theories if you really want to know. But um, my main concern is not how did they live so long. My main concern is what is the theological, what is the message here for us today? Uh, More so than focusing on the number of years, I think it's more significant that every single person died. And you see this in the English in all of chapter 5. After Adam, then there's Seth, and after Seth, uh, Enosh, after Enosh, so and so. And it goes all the way down. They trace it generations down to, to every single person died. And it's interesting that in the English, the last word of every person's genealogy. said, this person lived this life for this many years, and then they died. It's the same word in the English as it is in the Hebrew. And he died. He died. Vayimot, Vayimot, Vayimot. He died. He died. So repeatedly, there's a reminder. Keep in mind, Genesis 5 comes after the first four chapters of Genesis, which is about creation and the fall. And if you remember the conversation that the serpent has with with Adam and Eve, well, if we eat the fruit, God said, we'll die. And the serpent says, you will surely not die, which is a bald-faced lie. You surely will not die is what the serpent said. We know the serpent is wrong because now if you read Genesis 5, every single person, it serves as a reminder, they they died, they died, they died. God, God, I don't think he he likes to rub stuff in our face, but if this is his chance, he would say, I told you so. Sometimes consequences are hard things to face. Even adults, every adult, that's the difference between adults and children. We uh, all have consequences, but adults, we learn to listen (laughs) to our consequences because we've made the mistake, we've hit our head on that two-by-four enough times to realize it's better for me to heed, to bow, to walk under it, better to pay attention to the consequences. They died, so there's a reminder there. And on top of that, you have this kind of long string in Genesis chapter 5 of all these people that are born. When I was a younger Christian in middle school, and I said, um, I asked somebody, how should I read the Bible? And they said, just read it. Some people said you read it from the New Testament, you read the Psalms. Um, if you asked me today, I would say read the Gospels, read the epistles, read the, the stuff in the New Testament. When you're ready, read the Old Testament. Somebody told me if you want to fall asleep, read the Bible. If you want to fall asleep, read Leviticus, read the laws. If you want to fall asleep, read the genealogy. And I think that's true, that's half true. Um, it's in there, I think God puts it in there, um, maybe to help us to fall asleep at night, but more so, there is a message. The genealogy contains something. So when you get to Genesis chapter 5, and I want to teach you how to read the boring stuff, how do we read the genealogies? Because you read it, you get halfway through, your eyes start doing this, and the next thing you know, it did. Its, it, it helped you to fall asleep for the night. No, 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 let me show you what to look for when you come across genealogies. The number one thing about genealogies is the repetitiousness of it. Repetition is a formula. When you see a repeti- repetition, look for the repeated verbs, look for the repeated ideas. For example, I pointed out that every single person died. There's a message there. What, what else is repeated? The word begat is repeated, or in, in the version we read today, he became the father of. But in the old version, it says begat, begat. So there's something there. Another thing that you can look for in the repetition is breaks in the repetition. If you have a repeated formula, and, you know, this this is Houston, we have a couple of engineers here, and you learn to look diagnostically, but then you see a variation, that's meant to be paid attention to. So one of the variations in Genesis 5, in the genealogy, and -and so-and-so begat, and he lived a billion years, and then he died, and -and so-and-so begat. And by the way, Enoch walked with God. That's a variation. And it was so interesting to students of the Bible that they've written entire books, books and books, a lot of ink spilled about what this means that Enoch walked with God. There's another variation, and it is Noah. Of all the people that are named here, the only one whose name is explained is Noah. So in other words, this is how you read the genealogy, You look for the repetition, look for the variations, and those variations are going to give us a couple of hints today. But the main thing that I want to camp out on this first heading, the genealogy, is verse 1. In verse 1 it says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. This is the book. Wait, wait, wait. I thought Genesis 1 started four chapters ago. When you said, this is the book of the creation in the beginning, God, why does it say in the beginning of chapter 5, this is the book? Why is there kind of this break as if somebody put in a chapter and inserted chapter 5, almost a break from chapter 4 and to transition to chapter 6? What is it about chapter 5 that serves this unique purpose of transitioning the first story into the second story? So, I just want to remind you really quick that the story just before Genesis 5, if you have your Bibles, you just turn back one page, what do you see? Cain and Abel. Before that, you see the serpent in the garden. Before that, you see the creation. In other words, the first four chapters of Genesis are about creation. And after the creation story in chapter 6, you have the flood story of Noah. Noah. Genesis 5 is inserted right there, not just to break it, but to transition it, to connect the theme. The question is, what is the theme that's constant in the first story and in the second story? I'm not going to spell it out right away. What do you think is common? What do you think is the same theme in the story of creation and the story of the flood? What I want to put forth today is something called the will to power. And that gets us into our second selection and our second heading. The will to power. This will to power is the thing that's common in the first story, and it's common in the second story, and the genealogy transitions us. Let me explain to you what I mean by the will to power. My agenda today is that by the end of this talk, every single one of you have been convinced that the will to power is something that we all do and know. You expect it to come to church on Sunday and hear a sermon on sin. The will to power is sin, or maybe evil, or if you're a little bit theologically literate, then you might say uh, depravity. The depravity, the will to power is how the depravity of mankind, humankind works. And I'll illustrate it right now in a story that goes back about 30 years, 30 years ago I was a young teenager and um, my younger brother, three years younger than me, I say I was about 13 years old, my brother at the time 10 years old and we both had, we had a basketball hoop in our backyard and I had just experienced my growth spurt and my brother was a midget, I must have seemed like the Nephilim to my brother and I learned that with my brother, I could get my way every single time through brute force. And when it came to the basketball court, all I had to do was, if I had the brick, I would just plow through him. It, it didn't matter. So I would plow through him. That's my will to power. Younger brothers, beware. I, I'm a terrible older brother. But thank God, you know. Let me point this out on a side note. It was so interesting. I just realized this. The bro, the the, 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 the Bible Genesis starts with two brothers, Cain and Abel. One kills the other, right? And then Genesis ends with two brothers, Joseph and Judah. One saves the other, or they both save each other. Isn't that interesting? Cain and Abel, one kills the other, but by the end of Genesis, God's people are starting to learn the way the gospel works is you lay your life down for your younger brother. You don't plow him through in the basketball court. Now, it's easy to look at older siblings and say, yeah, the will to power, that's your problem. But let me explain my younger brother's will to power because he did this really well. So my younger brother learned, he learned that, okay, if I have the ball and my older brother, who's 10 feet taller than me, is trying to defend me, my younger brother learned how, with quickness and agility, to basically get, you know, if I was up at the, at the top and, and I'm guarding him like this with my long spindly arms. He would basically, he would just run circles around me and take it to the hoop. And he would score. And that would make me really angry. And so what I would do is I would say, fine, I would back off. I would back off and just get the rebound. And of course, he would hit the three all day. And I kid you not, there came a point where my brother, my younger brother, was, he was destroying me. And I would take the ball and I would shove it in his chest, and I would say, again. And I would do that until I would beat him. And of course, I would not be able to beat him. So my will to power was exerted in a rather one-dimensional way. I'm going to plow through you. That's my style, it's my weakness as well. All of us have weaknesses. His will to power in a typical younger sibling fashion, his younger, his will to power was quickness, smarts, agility, and skill. Just hit the three. But he found his way to overcome. And it was to his benefit, but it also has a shadow side. What I'm trying to say is this will to power, it started in the moment when the serpent says to Adam and Eve, if you eat this, you will become like God. And you will know the difference between good and and evil. What does it mean to know the difference between good and evil? If you know the difference between all children, they kind of basically know what the difference between good and evil is. All children know this, but what is adulthood? Adulthood is when you're old enough and you realize that what is evil, you can use it for your own good. And what is good might not always be good for you. It might not be in your own self-interest. When we begin to contort what good and evil is, and we start to say, well, actually, the world is not so one-dimensional. Maybe I can cheat. That's what the world does. And that way I can get a little bit further ahead. Maybe I can work the system. And all of a sudden, what was good kind of becomes a little bit shady, and what was evil actually is in my best interest. It becomes good. And so the serpent introduces this kind of convoluted idea of what is exactly good and evil, and that carries over. that carries over into chapter six in the story of Noah. Good and evil is no longer a one-dimensional thing. It's no longer purely good. It's no longer purely evil. All of a sudden now, humanity knows how to work the angles to its benefit. Humanity knows how to work the system, how to circumvent, how to cheat, how to do something in my own self-interest. That's not actually exactly ethical, but it's good for me. That element, that thing, that will to power that's present in the creation story, I want to say it creeps into Genesis chapter 6 by way of 5. Through all of these generations... All of these generations, what we see is that this dark evil still exists, this will to power. Listen as I read Genesis chapter 6 and the first four verses. Listen to the word of the Lord. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, They took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man, mankind, humankind forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. So here God cuts the lifespan. And in verse 4, the Nephilim this is interesting the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown this is a very curious passage it sounds like the clash of the titans it sounds like something something you know out of a fantasy novel or something but there's a message in this, what seems to be this harmless just beginning to a new story. Actually, there, is several, there are several references that I think kind of cast a negative light on humanity. The first thing that I'll point out is that you have people beginning to multiply. Well, what's wrong with that? What did God say to Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and Multiply. So how is this a bad thing that people are multiplying? It's not a bad thing. It's very interesting. Um, some commentators rec- recognize that there's a dimension of overpopulation here. And we'll, maybe we'll talk a little bit about that next week. Next week, we're gonna, the title of next week's sermon is going to be Noah and Catastrophic Climate Change. Because I think this does apply to issues like overpopulation and the effect on the environment. Let's talk about that. Here at Woven, we want to sanctify Monday to Friday. What does it mean that we're affecting the ice caps? Or what does it mean that we live in the the gas, the petroleum capital of the world? And the coming rains, God forbid, God forbid, right? I, I don't even know, it's so hot right now, I don't know if this is normal or if this is, you know, Climate change or, or, or you, know, you know, I'm not making a political statement at all. I don't know what it is. All I know is it's, it's hot. It's really hot outside. And so people multiply. And the negative inference there, um, the negative inference there is that this is a multiplication that goes out of control. The Hebrew word that's used there is that people were not just multiplying, they were becoming great. Great in their own eyes. They were becoming great even in the eyes of God. The second thing I think that shows us that there's something negative happening here is God saying, I can't take this anymore. 900 years, there's too much going on. So I'm going to cut their lifespans shorter. So he cuts their lives, they live shorter. But the third thing that really stands out to me, that tells me that this is not a positive, rosy picture, is the mention of these people called the Nephilim. Nephilim, quick Hebrew lesson. If it finishes with Im, that pluralizes. So you have these people, they're called the Nephel, the Nephel ones, Nephilim. What does Nephel mean? Nephel means to fall, to fall in the Hebrew. Now this is interesting, what you have here, the Nephilim are the fallen ones, and they are the titans who kind of live on the earth, they rule this place. I think what's being conveyed here is these fallen ones, people have speculated who are the Nephilim. Some people have said they're fallen angels. Some people talk about a race of giants. Whatever you interpret that to mean, the, uh, the, the message that's conveyed here is there are people who are ruling the earth that live under some kind of a dark power. They are the fallen ones. Some say fallen angels. Whatever the case may be, whatever the case may be, Earth is kind of a dark, you know, Conan the Barbarian kind of scenario right now, that you have these titans, these fallen people, fallen giants that roam the earth. And the rule of the land is mercy, love, justice, and compassion. Actually, it's quite the opposite. The rule of the land is this thing called the will to power the will to power. You know, um, I want to preach the gospel now. And in order to preach the gospel, before you hold out hope, you kind of first have to articulate how sick the human condition really can be and how sick we really can be. Now think about it. You know, a 13-year-old kid shoving the basketball in his younger brother's chest. When I see my own children doing that, I'm like, don't do that. I mean, wouldn't you correct your own children if they're acting like that? That that's not bad. I mean, that's bad. That's not respectful. Don't do that. But I, I tell you the truth, that instinct is still in me. If I can't get my way, I'm going to plow through. And if I fail at plowing through, I'm going to shove the ball back and say, let's do this again, because that's stubbornness at its worst. Now this instinct, it lives, it lives in every aspect, not just our personal lives. Maybe if you're an older sibling, you, are, you might relate to what I've just said. Maybe if you're a younger sibling, you're, you're saying, well, I don't, I don't do that. That sounds just like what older kids do. The younger siblings, instead, you've learned how to be more quicker how to kind of bend the truth. You've learned how to be sly, just like Jacob in the Bible. You've learned to work the angles. How's that working out for you? Not so well in the case of Jacob. Eventually, it would bite him in the butt. Eventually, Jacob's own deception would become the very deception that his sons would use on him. Do you remember that, when we talked about that? Jacob, he became Israel. He favoritizes who? Joseph. And in the process makes the rest of his 11 sons jealous towards him. So what do they do? They kill Joseph. So Jacob, even what he thinks is in his best interest, ultimately hurts him too. So I'm sorry. Us, evil, us older, older evil siblings, we're not the only ones that are the younger siblings as well at work this is something that is this is this is a principle that happens of course you know we can talk about the oil industry well what's the cost per barrel right now what benefits us the most of course i live in houston so if oil does well i do well so it's in my best interest to pollute the atmosphere with carbon it's in my best interest and it's very funny because when i used to live on the west coast it was very different we were very we had a very different view but the thing is, what is in our best interest? Does it, have a, does it harm something in the process? One last example that I'll share with you, and it's in nature. I think this is very interesting, that when you look at a butterfly, it's some, there's a species, it's, it's called the dead leaf butterfly. And the dead leaf butterfly makes a living by lying. The dead leaf butterfly that survives at the end of the day, that is most successful at surviving is the one that deceives the best. Now isn't it one of the Ten Commandments to not bear false witness? So what we have here is not just in older siblings or younger siblings or in the market or in the reality of the world but even in nature even in nature everything everything is infected with this will to power that whether i'm telling the truth whether i'm deceiving being the dead leaf butterfly whether i'm doing what's in my best interest ultimately i have a will to power you have a will to power every not just person, but all of creation has this ego and this need to kind of self-preserve, to protect, to do whatever I can do in order to get my way. That will to power, I believe, is what happened when we ate the fruit. We all became selfish. Everything, not just people, but creation curved in on itself. It curved inward, and no longer was life about preferring others, about selflessness, about giving, about transparency, about openness. Life now became about what will serve me, what will be best for me. Life became egocentric. Friends, what we're doing here is is hopefully deep surgery, and what you're hearing I hope is this understanding that I identify with this. I identify deep down inside with this thing, this will to power. It lives. It lives in the world. It lives in nature. Everything is infected with it, including myself. So let's wrap this up and land this plane. What's the hope? What's the hope of the world? So creation starts out, this dark ego, this dark will to power, the, the, the evil that Satan introduced into the world, it carries over generations later, later into the flood. Next week we'll talk about what this flood looks like and even how the will to power persists. But the question is is there a hope? Is there an antidote? Right? I was talking about this with Sang yesterday as well. It's not here. You know, about how free markets, capitalism. We've seen, by and large, they benefit society. But they also have a shadow side, greed, self-interest, corruption. Is there an answer to this really, really complicated mess? And that leads us to this third and last heading, the meaning of Noah. What does Noah mean? There is an answer. Noah is a foreshadow in some ways of Christ foreshadow of Christ so let's look at this last selection the third and last selection is from Genesis 5 verse 28 and 29 remember I said if there's repetition look for the variation the variation in Genesis 5 in this repeated refrain is the meaning of Noah and so they take a moment to break with the formula to explain what Noah means listen to this Lamech lived 182 years, and he became the father of a son. Now he called his son's name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands, arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Noah, this one will give us rest. So he calls his name. So what exactly does Noah mean? I can tell you right now the Hebrew word Noah Noach, it means rest, comfort. But the question, real question, is rest and comfort from what? And rest and comfort how? So if this is rest and comfort, rest and comfort from what? It says from the work and the toil of our hands. How many of you are looking forward to going back to work tomorrow? And something is not, (laughs) the will to power is more subtle. (laughs) Going back to work, the toil of our hands, this is the curse that carried over from the creation story. Do you remember? So it says, now that everything has fallen, God says, you will surely die. God says, now the work and the toil of your hands, now it's going to be painful. Noah actually gives us rest from work. Now the question is, how does Noah give us rest from work? And it's a little humorous to me. As I dived into this, Noah gives us rest from work. Some believe, uh, when you look later on in chapter, I think this is chapter 9, chapter 9, we see that Noah, uh, it says, after the flood, he began farming and he planted a vineyard. And from the vineyard, he became the father of wine. Um, So Noah is famously known in Jewish tradition as the inventor of what? Fermentation. (laughs) So how does Noah give us rest from the toil of our work and our labors? Quite possibly, that might be what it means. He invented wine. He invented alcohol, and that was the way that we find rest from our work and our labors. We're not teetotalers here at Woven, um, but I'm not sure if I'm going to take that angle. The reason I'm not—some of you are like, "Darn it! That's not the—that's not the hope of the world. Alcohol." The. You know, the reason I say that is because actually when you look at that that story, when he planted the vineyard, it says immediately after that he became drunk and he uncovered himself in the tent. And then the story of Ham, Shem, Japheth, that that whole thing plays out. It, It goes bad again. So I can't say that alcohol is the hope of the world because I know too many recovering alcoholics, first of all. I know. I've heard the stories. And second of all, because... Alcohol reintroduced the darkness back into the world. It reintroduced the will to power. Everything was going fine until alcohol. It was going fine until alcohol. They were living a utopian society. They were back in the garden of, and Noah was planting grapes. Well, grapes they fermented. Let's try this out and everything falls again. And then, you know, this thing repeats again and again. That's the point I'm trying to make. The will to power, it's persistent. I'm going to use this illustration. I'm going to show it next week. It's like Hurricane Harvey and those flotilla of fire ants that you think, thank God, Harvey washed away all the evil in Texas. We will never see them again, and yet they survived. They created floating fire ant islands. They persist, and to this day, I'll step on a mound, and they're still there. Evil still lives in the world. In the same way, this will to power, it finds ways back in. Even after the flood, it enters back in the moment Noah uncovers himself and becomes drunk. So no. I think it's a very interesting theory that through wine, Noah gives us relief from the work of our hands. But I don't think that's the answer. I think the final answer is that Noah for the first time shows a new type of relationship between God and us. And this is a relationship called covenant. And it sets the stage. It gives us the language for the rest of the Bible for how God is going to deal with us. Through the rainbow, through the promise, God says, this is what I'm going to do for you. This is how I'm going to deal with you because obviously you cannot keep your word. And you try, and you say, I'm going to do it better this time, I'm not going to screw up this time, but you constantly fail. And no matter what I do to treat my people, to treat humanity, this will to power, like this persistent fire ant, it keeps coming back. Even if the whole earth is covered with water, like Hurricane Harvey, the fire ants, they keep coming back. The will to power, it still exists no matter how hard I try to teach you to be selfless, to not kill your brother, but to lay your life down for your younger brother, to stop shoving the ball in his chest, to share, to love other people. If I try harder, actually you seem more bent to exercise this evil, this will to power. It's in us, I'm sorry to say that, it's in our DNA. It's in us, even our DNA is mutated in creation. The minute the fruit was eaten, even our genetics, they changed. Everything in us changed. It all became self-interested. It all became bent inwards, and we all die. I mean, doctors here, is there, are there any cells that live forever? There is. There is one cell. You know what it is? Cancer. Cancer lives forever. Isn't that interesting? That the only, maybe I'm complete, maybe my medicine is completely off and I'm, I go where I know nothing about. But cells, they're not meant to live forever. Everything within us, friends, has become darkened. It's become mortal. It's become self interested. And the only answer, the only answer is God dealing with us in a new way. God saying, I'm going to make a covenant. Because obviously, you can't keep your word. More about this covenant in weeks to come. Today, we just set the stage, and that's all I wanted to do. I'm hoping that I have you in the grip of my hand saying, Pastor, please, don't leave us. Give us hope before we leave. There is hope. There's the covenant of Christ God dealing with the world in a new way. But more on that in weeks to come. I want to leave you with three thoughts, three applications before we conclude. The first thought is this will to power, it's pervasive. It's not just in it's not just it's not just this sin thing, this spiritual. It's in all of it's in all of creation, it's in our genes. It's in the in physiology. All of creation screams me, me first. The kids who went to camp. Kids who went to camp, do you remember this? Rocks cry out. Right? We learned this whole message of if I don't praise, then the rocks will cry out to God. That's because Jesus entered into the scene. But prior to that moment, all of creation screamed, me. Me. Me first. Me. Me first. My needs first. Me. I'm not self-interested in the subtlest ways everything is self-interested. The will to power, it's pervasive. Secondly, and this is a, a foretaste of next week and what's to come. Water, it doesn't wash out all evils. Water doesn't wash out all evils. Even the flood Even the flood would not succeed in washing out the will to power. The third and last, there must be an antidote. There must be a hope. With this, I want to invite the worship team back up. There must be something. There must be an answer.